Good morning, Crosspoint Coast. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matthew Hardy. I'm one of the four elders here at Crosspoint, and it's uh, my privilege today to get to bring God's Word to you. I bring uh, with me greetings from um, Grace Bible Church in East London, South Africa. I was privileged to go and worship with them for three weeks recently, and um, it was a real blessing. They wanted to make sure that they passed on their greetings, their love, the fact that they do often pray for us. Like I said, they are a fellow uh, Acts 29 church. They are a fellow laborers in the gospel, and they have a special place in our heart because uh, that's where the Mentons attend as well. It was really a sweet time to spend time with them. Um, they have uh, many challenges in front of them. They have the challenge of bringing the gospel to, to several different cultures at the same time. They have the challenge of a church planted in the middle of a, a, a space that's more popular with prosperity gospel than it is the real gospel. And they have the challenge of shepherding people in such a diverse culture as well. So keep them in your prayers. And uh, I know us as elders always keep them in our prayers for this church and do what we can to support them. So today we're wrapping up our sermon series in uh, Acts. It's called Witnesses. I did a quick count. This is sermon number 36 in Acts. And uh, so we've been in it for a while. And I, I really hope it's been as beneficial for you as it has been for me. It's been some sweet time. I hope it sparked some good conversation in your community groups. I hope it sparked some conversation at your dinner tables uh, and just uh, drawn us all closer to God. If you weren't here last week, you missed a great message from Miguel. You also missed um, Crosspoint Espanol coming and joining us. It was really sweet to see uh, Espanol come over in such great numbers, to see um, the body of Christ, to see uh, what it looks like to be a little expanded outside of our normal, our normal range, our normal people who would come. And, and it was just beautiful to see, and, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. We got to see uh, the Word of God reach out and pull in people from all over. And that's what we've been seeing in Acts over and over again. We've seen the Word of God reach out beyond what was normal and reach in and pull in people, the Gentiles from all over. We've seen God uh, create a people group for himself, a new people, and bring them to himself. So as Denson read, our, our text starts in, in Acts 28. We're going to focus on a, the second half, kind of. We're going to start in verse 16 and work our way down through there. So if you have a Bible, keep it open. We're going to use the text as our outline and go verse by verse. Um, not that uh, snake handling doesn't always make a great sermon, but <laughs> we're going we're gonna to focus on Paul's time in Rome, and there's no snakes in the audience today, I promise. Join me in prayer before we start. God, I thank you for um, this account. Lord, I thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us, in particular, the book of Acts, or that we could see your work that we could see your faithfulness, that we could see you do what you do best, which is draw people. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears today. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that you would exalt yourself in spite of our failings, in spite of us. Lord, that your name would be lifted high, that you would be glorified here today. Lord, that we would see you as the true king that you are, that we would recognize your kingdom, that we would embrace it, Lord, and that we would be a witness to it. 
Pray these things in your name. Amen. So in, in verse 16, we get a, our first bit of information. We see Paul is confined to house arrest. So this is no accident that Paul is assigned to house arrest. It's where God wanted him. It's where God had a plan to use him there. Uh, it was no more an accident that he's in house arrest than it was that he survived the shipwreck and survived the snake bite and survived the beatings and the murderous plots beforehand. God had much for Paul to do, and being in house arrest afforded him the opportunity to do it. One of those opportunities that was provided to Paul under house arrest was that he was handcuffed to a rotating team of soldiers. They would have worked in shifts, and there probably would have been six of them a day when a rotating shift to, to guard him. They would have been cuffed together at the wrist. One thing uh, R.C. Sproul shared in the commentary that I was looking at, he said there was there were no more blessed prison guards in history of the world than those six men who had the unspeakable privilege of being cuffed to the wrist of the world's greatest preacher of all time. So God used handcuffs, and he handcuffed people to his ambassador. And they went where Paul went, and they heard what Paul said, and they visited with Paul's friends, and they heard the gospel, I am sure, over and over and over we know this happened. We know it's true. We see it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 and 3. It says this, I want, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul was a witness to his guards. He didn't waste an opportunity of being handcuffed to anybody. Another opportunity afforded to Paul in this house arrest was writing. He got a chance to write some letters, some letters that we are familiar with. Letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and Philemon during his time of house arrest. So Paul didn't waste the opportunity that God gave him here. We quickly see in 17, Paul follows the same pattern he's followed throughout Acts. He comes into a town and he looks for the Jewish leaders. Typically, he goes to the synagogue. Well, he's under house arrest, so that makes it difficult. But he reaches out, and uh, they decide to come to him. We do know a little bit about the state of the Jews in Rome at this time. This is about 60 AD. We know from Acts 18 and from some outside sources that uh, earlier in about 52, 54 AD, the emperor Claudius kicked out all the Jews uh, from Rome. They were all exiled. Uh, since then, we've got about 40 to 50,000 that have returned so they do have a presence in the city, but it's a bit disorganized, a bit chaotic. So Paul begins and he appeals to, the, to these people and he calls them his brothers because that's what he feels like they are. And um, we see he uses what he uses throughout the whole section of Acts, of Acts 22 through 26, called the legal section of, of Acts that we've, that we've been reading through. And we see Paul defend himself. We see his, his first argument is a, is a reminder that he's not attacking the Jews or their customs. Paul does not wish these people harm, not at all. In his letter to the Romans, written about three years earlier, Paul shares in chapter 9, 1 through 5, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen 
according to my flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is having to stand before these men that he said he would be willing to trade his own salvation for to see them come to Christ. And he's having to defend himself. And even though in Jerusalem his motives were pure, Paul, like Christ himself, was handed over to the Romans. And also like Christ, the Romans found nothing wrong with Paul. They didn't see anything worthy of his death. In verse 19, we see another echo of the trial of Jesus. It was the Jews who objected and caused the trial to go on. It certainly brings to mind uh, Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate. Jesus being released and saying, Barabbas or Jesus? And the Jews chose Barabbas. The second half of 19, we see this. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Paul was a Roman citizen, now in Rome. Full use of his rights could have been made. He could have very easily brought a countersuit or even sued the um, Jews himself. And most likely he would have won. Uh, from, from what we see in the earlier chapters, the Jewish leaders didn't have much of a case against Paul. And Paul had a lot of rights as a Roman citizen. The Jews were even still on tenuous footing in Rome. The emperors, even though they allowed them to come back, uh, did not fully trust them. But like I said, Paul loves these people. He calls them brothers. Uh, he, he would not want to do that because he has something more important than his rights. He has something more important than his freedom even. He has a message for these people of Israel. We see it in 20. He says, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. See, Paul still hopes for the Jews. He hopes in spite of everything that he's been through. He has every reason not to hope. He's seen uh, murder plots. He's seen false accusations. He's been dragged through the streets. He's been beaten almost to the point of death. But Paul knows something. He knows it intimately. He knows God's power to save. If you remember who Paul was before he ran into Christ on the road, Paul was a murderer of Christians, a wicked man with his heart set against Christ. He describes himself as the chief of sinners. Paul knows firsthand the power of God to save, though. So he has no reason to doubt that God could even save the Jews who have tried to kill him so many times. It's with this hope and faith and knowledge that Paul has endured these chains and these trials, these prosecutions, these accusations. He's come as an ambassador in chains. He's come for the Jews to experience the same thing that he did. In 21, we finally hear from the Jewish leaders. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. So this is probably a little bit odd for Paul. Usually he gets to a town and his reputation has preceded him. And it's not always great for him that it has happened that way. But so for some reason, Paul's arrived before any complaint against him. One likely explanation is that the mail just hasn't arrived yet. If you remember, when Paul went on this sh ship journey, 
It was a crazy time of year to go. Nobody sails in the winter, and it's obvious why. There was tempestuous storms that destroyed the boats, and it would have been well known. So Paul actually beat the mail by sailing in crazy weather. But whatever the reason, it was an advantage for Paul. We're not familiar with him. We see in, in verse 22 that they did know of the sect of Christianity as they dismissively labeled it a sect. We do see that the Jewish leaders are very interested in hearing from Paul, and they had many reasons to be interested. They saw Christianity as a possible issue for them, for them in in every aspect. They saw it as a divisive force, and it brought a lot of concerns. But what we do see is that in verse 23, the leaders have no issue in even bringing greater numbers to come and hear Paul. What we see in 23 is a direct fulfillment of Acts 23, 23.11 reads this, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the fact about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I wonder if Paul was holding on to that during the shipwreck. I wonder if that's what gave him courage to, to know that they were going to be okay because the Lord had spoken this promise to him. He knew he would arrive in Rome. I wonder if Paul thought he would arrive in Rome chained to a guard, having to be under house arrest, though. We get a small description of a very long teaching. Basically, Paul spent an entire day doing an at-home Bible study of the Old Testament. We see Paul's argument to the Jews is not a new argument for Paul. It's one he's preached before and one he will continue to preach. Paul takes one of the greatest thread that runs from the Old Testament into the New Testament and he uses that to show that Jesus is indeed the king. He expands on the, the, the kingdom of God to prove the Lord's kingship. When we say the kingdom of God, it can sound a little Christianese sometimes. What is the kingdom of God? How many could define that for me right now. I I think not many. It sounds like a good thing. It's got to be good. God is good. His kingdom's good. We know that. Paul spent the better part of a day explaining the kingdom of God to the Jews because the Jews had a great misunderstanding of what it was. They had such a misunderstanding that many of the Jews missed the Messiah who was in front of their face because of this misunderstanding. The Jews were familiar with kingdoms. They knew kingdoms. They knew the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Solomon. And of course, right in front of their face, they knew the kingdom of the Romans. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest ever. They were in the middle of it. They were subjugated under it. They could not escape it. They were even in Rome at that time because of the pleasure of the emperor. He decided to let them there. So the Jews saw the kingdom as a, as a great power, as a military power, as a political power, as a geographical power. And they wanted the Messiah who would usher in a kingdom and replace the Romans to free them from the reign of the emperor. The kingdom of God was not that, though. Jesus explains it in Luke seventeen twenty through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. 
Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Also in Matthew 13, 31 through 33, some parables to explain the kingdom of God. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. You see, the kingdom of God starts out small. It's not defined by geography. If it was defined by geography, as Kuiper points out, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Geographically, the kingdom of God is everywhere. It's everywhere we look. It's his rule. But his kingdom's even greater than that. All those that are in Christ are already in the eternal kingdom. Sproul hopefully points out a piece of that thread that ties the beginning to the end. If we look at Genesis 49, we see Jacob blessing his children, and we see something unique there, particular to Judah. In 49 verse 8, he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from behind, from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of the grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his feet Wider, or his teeth whiter than milk. We see in verse 10 there, there's a scepter and a ruler staff in, the, in, in Judah, and the descendants of Judah. And we turn all the way to the end of the Bible, we see in the revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 5. We see this um, beautiful section of scripture here. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John's giving this account. And and he says, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. John says, And I begin to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. We see John's vision of heaven here. We see this glimpse of the kingship of the kingdom of Christ. that stretches beyond borders, beyond time. John's account continues, and I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter, so stay with me. It's It's really beautiful. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What we get in this picture of Jesus that we see in Revelation, we get to see Jesus exalted, Jesus in his reign, Jesus in his kingship, what it looks like to see Jesus as king. But we get to see a king who ransomed his own people by his blood. We get to see Christ exalted in his office as king. It gives me chills. We know from Revelation that one day that rain will come down to earth. Jesus will be returned and he will be recognized as king by everyone. We know that every knee will bend. Some will bend in service and reverence and some will be broken, but every knee will bend and recognize who Jesus is. But this kingdom of God that we're talking about isn't just something that's going to happen in the future. The kingdom has been consummated. Christ is on the throne now. He's sitting on the throne. We're in an already not yet kind of situation. But even now, Christ is still gathering people to himself, expanding his kingdom all the time. Right now, we serve this mighty king who rules the cosmos, controls the seas, and has power and authority over each and every molecule in the universe. This king, though, condescended and lowered himself down. He lowered himself down to come to us because he knew we wouldn't come to him. He didn't wait until we cleaned ourselves up. He came while we were still enemies. He came and rescued us. He came at great personal expense. It cost him his own blood, his own life, his own dignity. He was mocked and ridiculed and beaten, just as, as Isaiah predicted. It was by his stripes that we were healed. He died a death that we deserved and gave us a righteousness that we could never earn. His worth in heaven, though, is sung as a, not as a conquering lion, although he is a conquering lion. His worth in heaven is sung as the lamb that was slain. This is what Paul is preaching. He's preaching the kingdom of God, the kingship of Jesus Christ, what the Jews missed, what they overlooked. He's using the law. He's using the prophets. He's using the Old Testament to show how Jesus fulfills every one of the prophecies, to show Jesus is the true king, that there's no need to wait for the Messiah. In verse 24, we see the effect of what happens when we preach the gospel, though. People who are truly listening 
will be changed. Now, some positively and some negatively. There's very little room for neutrality when the gospel is presented. We see it over in scripture, over and over again. The gospel is preached. Some people believe, some people don't. We know it's the Lord who calls, and we know it's the Lord who saves. 25, we see the result of that division, disagreement between the Jews. Then we see Paul making a closing statement before, at the end of the day, at the end of the study. He says this. He says, the Holy Spirit was right. It's notable that he doesn't say Isaiah was right. He says the Holy Spirit was right, right? Because Isaiah might be wrong. There's that chance, right? The Holy Spirit is never wrong. God is never wrong. We see Paul's own opinion of this in his letter to Timothy. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. If God is breathing it, it's incapable of being wrong. And Paul's going to use it for reproof and correction in this case. When you first read the section of Isaiah that Paul quotes to them, it sounds awfully harsh. It sounds like a condemnation. I know the first couple times I read it, I said, what am I going to do with this? Paul is shutting the door on the Jews. It's a condemnation of unbelief. 26 says this, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Basically, you'll never get it. It's just impossible. When you look at the text in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, it's a, it's a section of scripture a lot of us know. We see Isaiah in front of the Lord. Isaiah witnessing the kingship of the Lord. He sees the king, the Lord of hosts, and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He recognizes his own sinfulness immediately. The angel brings a coal and puts it on his lips, and he says, your sins have been forgiven. Quickly after that, the Lord looks for a volunteer, and Isaiah gleefully volunteers. He receives a commission as a prophet. But it's quickly followed up with what we just read in 26. He's told his prophecies will end up hardening hearts. They will make ears deaf and that only a small remnant will believe. Probably not the most encouraging thing to send off a new prophet with, I would imagine. Paul's just experienced his own reality, though. He brought the word of the Lord. He brought the truth of who Jesus is. He revealed his kingship. And many of the Jews' hearts were hardened and their eyes closed. We see the same thing with Stephen. But of course, there was a much more violent reaction with Stephen. Those who did not believe stoned him and killed him. Ironically, Paul was on the other side of the sermon in that time. Paul was there in the audience. Paul heard the truth of Christ. And Paul's heart was hard at that time. The first half of 27 provides a diagnosis of the problem. Diagnosis is this, there's dull hearts, damaged ears, and closed eyes. People had closed their eyes. They had been so sure of what was supposed to happen. They were so sure of who the Messiah was. They could not accept the truth, even though it was presented plainly right in front of them. Oftentimes in Scripture, we associate ourselves with the wrong characters. 
Matt Chandler has a pretty popular sermon where he points out that in the story of David and Goliath, we often place ourselves, of course, in the place of David. And Goliath is our problems, and we'll use our stones, and we'll take care of it. Well, he, Matt points out that, um, in fact, we're the quaking Israelites in the corner, shaking in our armor. We aren't David. In this section of Scripture, it's easy to say, well, of course, we'd be Paul, right? We wouldn't be the unbelieving Jews. We wouldn't have our hearts hardened or our ears dulled, Right? How easy is it for us, though, to have our own idea of who God is? How about when we say, God wouldn't do that, or the God I know would never? How easy is it to create a God of our own design? How, how tempting is it that when people speak truth to us, that we tune them out? How easy is it to lay down what we've come to believe, our theological convictions? How easy are those to lay down in, in the face of truth? Something we must be aware of. If we look at the second half of 27, though, we see what Paul delivered isn't a final condemnation to the Jews, but it requires some careful reading. It says this, Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So what's key there is the word lest. So they're actively performing the first half of the verse in order to prevent the second part of the verse, right? They can indeed see, they can indeed hear and even understand. And then even the gracious promise of God saying he would heal them. The scriptures are full of warnings about hardening our hearts. And I'll warn you now, it's a dangerous game to play. Eventually God will give you over to the hardness of your heart. He will give you over to your own desires. In 28, we see Paul telling them, basically, since you guys are too good for this gospel, since you don't care to partake in it, I'm going to preach it to somebody who will listen. I'm going to preach it to the Gentiles. This isn't a reason to think that Paul quit preaching to the Jews. Paul hasn't given up on the Jews not in Rome and not elsewhere. He'll continue to preach. And in verse 30, we see Luke close this long account of Acts, the one we spent 36 weeks in. And it just kind of ends, right? Paul keeps on doing what Paul does. He's preaching to any who would come. He's telling them the message of the gospel. And then it ends. It's like we've invested in this in the story, we've invested in these characters. We've invested months and months and months of Paul and Stephen and Peter. And the novel just ends like 50 pages short, it feels like. Well, one of the commentaries I, I read, the Pillar Commentary, helpfully points out the reason that I think. Uh, it's that because we aren't reading a biography of Paul we aren't reading the story of Stephen and Peter and Paul. We're reading a historical account of the spread of the word in the world. So when we look at that, it makes sense, right? We know the word has spread into Rome. We know Christ has done what he said he would do. He would, he would deliver Paul and Paul would testify. Now, I still wager that we're all a bit curious after investing so much time, what did happen to Paul 
right? Because he was sitting there in house arrest. He was under house arrest for two years. It's about by the time he's, uh, after two years, it's 62 AD. And uh, what we know from some sources and uh, a few other words in scripture is that um, Paul was most likely released from house arrest. He was either uh, never tried, the trial was canceled, or he was tried and found not guilty. So uh, in 62, he he continues his missionary journeys. Uh, Some accounts say he went as far west as he could, as far west as they knew. And uh, we do know that Paul wanted to go to Spain, so there's a chance that's where he ended up. He went to Spain. Uh, We do know, though, that Paul must have been arrested again uh, because he ended up in Rome shortly after uh, the little fire they had there in Rome where Nero was on the roof fiddling, right? Most of the city burnt down. And in the end, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire. Um, And so the Christians were none too popular. We have an account of Paul and Peter both being executed in 65 AD. We know that Peter was crucified upside down. He said he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. And Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, would not have been crucified. That's not what they did to Roman citizens. Instead, he would have been uh, beheaded by the sword. So, not the happiest of endings for them uh, on this world. Uh, What does this mean for us, though, right? We have this account. We see the story of Acts. We see Paul in Rome. What's the application? What does it mean for us? I think there's a few points I want to share. First one is God is sovereign, and he will accomplish his will. It was his will that the word would spread. It was his will that people would be saved, and it was his will that his name would be glorified. That was accomplished. Nothing stood in its way. Not the Roman government, not seas, not beatings, not people, not anybody. The second thing it means is there's no promise that life will be pleasant for us here. This is not your best life now. Sorry, Joel Osteen, every day is not a Friday. Jesus, Paul, Peter, Stephen, all the disciples would testify to that. Right? How, did, how did their lives end? Gruesomely, right? At a young age. The millions of martyrs around the world since up to today. Those suffering in Africa as we speak, being persecuted and killed, and around the world. Um, we have it pretty good here. We forget that there's martyrs being killed for their faith today. That area around the throne where the martyrs are sitting is filling up. Third point, we are called to endure. It's believed that Paul wrote 2 Timothy in his second imprisonment in Rome, the one that led to his execution. He says this to, to his brother Timothy. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He wrote that in a, in a dank uh, jail cell. It wasn't anywhere near as nice as his house arrest. 
and he was waiting to be poured out, and yet he endured. He wrote Second Timothy, like I said, during this time, and there's some stuff in there that doesn't make sense from somebody sitting in a jail cell. Uh, point application four is that Acts is a story about God. And like we said, it's not a story about Peter, Paul, and Stephen. We know that God alone is always faithful. God alone is always good. We know that all of the scripture testifies to God, and it's about Jesus Christ. We know that because Jesus Christ told us that. And the fifth is a call to faithfulness to the ordinary by example of the extraordinary. We're called to obedience in the everyday. We see these examples. We see, we see these apostles, and we see these crazy missionary journeys, and we see these people doing these extraordinary things. And it's easy to say, well, I'm not a missionary, right? I'm not called to go and preach from prison. I'm not called to, to suffer like that. But what we are called to is just ordinary life. We're called to obedience, even in the ordinary. We see these people, and, and if you know, we see Paul's example of enduring. We see we see their example of preaching up to the point of death. And you know, what's our excuse for not preaching because it's hot outside? You know, we're called to to be obedient in the everyday things of life, of just being a husband, being a wife, being a, a good child, being a good neighbor. It's the call because we serve the same God. We serve the same God as, these, as, as Peter and Paul and Stephen. And that's the call, obedience. So that wraps up our section of Acts. I wanted to take a quick moment and mention, since we talk about it often, Acts 29. Now, if you turn in your Bibles, there is, of course, no Acts 29, uh, but it is a, something that we're a part of. Uh, our, our church is an Acts 29 church. That means we're part of a church planting network. It's a church planting network that believes the best way for the word of God to spread is to plant churches. It's Acts 29 because we're continuing on the mission. We're continuing on the call to spread the word of God. We know there's many places that are still unreached. We know there's many dark corners. Uh, there's a few areas of emphasis right now for Acts 29, and it's uh, some of the rural areas uh, some of the, um, they call them church in hard places. Where is it hard to have church? Where is it unsustainable financially, perhaps, to have a church? That's a focus uh, for Acts is to send in support and make it possible uh, to have a church in those places where it just wouldn't work otherwise. And the third area of focus right now for Acts 29 is Islam. How to bring the gospel into dangerous places. Um, how to bring the gospel into places where having a Bible might get you killed. How do you preach the gospel there? How do you do that? As it stands in January 2019, there's 740 Acts 29 churches around the world, and that's growing all the time. Uh, There's all kinds of great resources to learn about Acts 29 online if you're interested, or we can tell you more. So that's the Acts 29 plug at the end of the Acts series.